despite the fact that I was a flag-waving, badge-wearing, street activist for lesbian and gay rights, I slotted into Stonewall, which was very much reformist and not revolutionary, because I knew pragmatically after Section 28 that that was what we had to do. Hello and welcome. This is Queer Recollections. It's a podcast where we're exploring and rethinking queer British history. Lisa Powell's motto is history is for interfering with. And that is exactly what she's been doing ever since she came out by accident in 1975 when photos of her holding a placard protesting the sacking of a gay man at British home stores were published in a local newspaper. She's been involved in just about every major gay rights struggle since this time. Our conversation spans her AIDS activism, the separatism and coming together of the lesbian and gay movement and how Margaret Thatcher's anti-gay Section 28 galvanised the movement and led to the formation of Stonewall, the gay rights lobby. Like all good stories, we start at the beginning. So I came out in the um, mid-70s and was out like a rocket, completely out, and involved in politics from the day I came out. Everything was very much more polymorphously perverse in those days. Um, There were a lot of people, I mean, basically... If you came out as gay, you weren't straight anymore, and that was that. But there were an awful lot of people, as there were, have been throughout my life, who weren't entirely gay and weren't entirely straight. But in those days, and it hardened as you got into the 80s, you were told to kind of pick a side and stick to it. I've rather taken the view that anybody who isn't straight is going to get into trouble if fascism ever rises again, so we might as well all stick together. Um, But in those days, sticking together meant you had to stick to the same label. Um, And then as as the 80s went on, people got more and more punished for not sticking well enough to that label. Things rigidified quite a lot. Um, They started by rigidifying into um, gay gay and lesbian or straight. Then within lesbians, they rigidified into what what the people I hung out with would call vanilla lesbians versus S&M dykes. Why do you think there was so many there was so much tension over this this issue of, of SM and I think that if you get any oppressed community, there are quite a substantial number of people who deal with it by turning around and oppressing other people. It's the kicking the cat syndrome or what my mm. friend my lifelong friend since I joined Switchboard um, and ended up with trying to train him in my first year there, a guy called Julian Howes, he calls it inappropriate identification of the enemy we're much better at shouting at each other than we are all turning around and shouting in a united way at the people who are our real enemies. Mm. Um, And that's been a a lasting life lesson for me is, you know, I don't mind having flaming rows with people in the community, but it's never going to be my first priority. We have enemies out there and they are far more important to deal with than worrying about what someone does in bed with another consenting adult or, you know, whether whether somebody is aping the patriarchy or something like that. Those things are worth discussing. I've learned a lot from people telling me off um, for doing things and explaining to me why it wasn't a good idea, but it will never, ever for me supersede dealing with the fascists 
um, the utter homophobes, the religious bigots, what, what, what have you. I'm wondering, in the 1980s, did lesbians and gay men tend to organise separately? <laughs> yeah, um, when I got to London, I got a huge shock because, okay, in Lancaster, there'd been some separatist um, feminists. They weren't necessarily lesbians. In fact, there was a hilarious year when the whole of the straight left, the, all of the women in the straight left turned lesbian because they'd read books saying that, you know, um, real feminists were lesbians. And I did quite well sexually that year, although I felt terribly guilty because I felt like I was a second class lesbian because they were all doing it for political purity and I was doing it for the last. <laughs> but, you know, um, but they did. But so, so it started in the 70s, really. And, and it was political theory um, that all women should be lesbians. But there was also a lot of political theory at that time that women should not give their energies to men in any way. Now, we didn't have a lot of that in Lancaster. Most of us just got on. And again, a life lesson Lancaster taught me was hanging out with people who weren't like me. Um, and it was more important what we had in common than what we didn't. Um, but I came down to London and lots of things were separatist. And when I, when I applied to join Gay Switchboard, as it was then, Switchboard as it is now, I had no idea that I was only the second lesbian back in after all the lesbians had left to form Lesbian Line. Lesbians were gold dust because we gave credibility to an organisation. And I'm afraid I took shameless advantage of being the first feminist lesbian back into switchboard with a bunch of very nice gay, um, pro-feminist gay men who were helping me out. Hmm. Um, and I shamelessly became a token in the mixed lesbian and gay movement, such as it was in the 80s. You've, you've put it slightly down to lesbian separatists mo moving away from um, gay men, but was, was there sexism within... Oh, well, I mean, they moved away from gay men for perfectly good reasons. Um, I mean, there were lots of appallingly behaved gay men. There were lots and lots of gay men who didn't want fish, as they referred to all women, anywhere near them. Um, but I've always liked a good fight. <laughs> I, was perfectly, I was perfectly prepared to deal with them as the price for the level of access to the powerful end of the movement mm -hmm. that it gave me to be one of those women in the mixed movement. I, people would listen to me. Um, people would pay attention. People would like my ideas. Um, people wanted to work on things with me. Not everybody. I mean, not all those men who referred to women as fish. They just wanted to see the back of me. Mm. And also I was a brat, to be honest. I mean, the, the switchboard logbooks are available at Bishopsgate Archives. And I read some of the ones from the early 80s and I wonder why I didn't get a good slap sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, um, there were a lot of really good gay men who wanted to work together with lesbians, even before the really bad stuff that started happening with AIDS. And AIDS did bring a lot of lesbians and gay men together. Mm. A lot of lesbians stepped up to the mark. Um, my friend Lorraine Trenchard was one of the women who started the lesbian blood drive when gay men were stopped from giving blood in 1985. So lesbians stepped up and also gay men, the trauma. I mean, you know, I was a bystander to it. And everybody who went through those years who was closely involved in the fight about AIDS has some level of post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. can be reduced to tears by the right song or the right noises or the right name 
But for a lot of gay men, it was much worse. And a lot of gay men lost half or more of their friendship network. Do, do you think it politicised people that wouldn't otherwise have been politicised? I think it made a lot of people very angry. And I think we have never given the community credit enough for the way that we scrambled. The response in uh, the UK, particularly in London, was seen as a blueprint. We did so much more, so much faster. And that's partly because um, in London, we had developed our own gay-based social services, switchboard, mm. friend, um, local community groups that met um, and looked after each other. Uh, we had a lot of those things, as well as a thriving entertainment scene. Um, mm. And I, I remember endless conversations with gay activists from other countries saying, how can we, how can we build the kind of resistance that you've got? Because all of our governments were dragging their feet mm. in those early days, all of them. But you know, even though they got off the mark quicker than anyone else, they, they were still, they were really weird about letting anybody who was labelled a gay activist anywhere near the response. Mm. Um, they wanted nice, respectable people in suits. And we're talking men's suits. Um, women were allowed in if they were doctors or social workers. But weirdly, foolishly, some local authorities seemed to think that as a lesbian, I'd be less trouble than a gay man, which... <laughs> They learned the hard way when they hired me. So I, I was a very early AIDS bureaucrat, you know. Um, mm. I was in demand because I straddled those two scary topics without actually being a junkie or a queer man, as they would have thought of them at the time. You, you spoke about the sort of community care that arose in response to AIDS. What did that, mm. what did that physically look like? What, what kinds of things did it involve? On Switchboard, we ended every single call for a while to everyone. And then as we narrowed it down to every time we had a gay man or a man who might be gay, every call would include the line somewhere, usually at the end, and have you heard about AIDS? You know, we, we took the message out. And I think Switchboard really was very central because we were talking to the people who wouldn't read the gay press, who would turn the television off if something came on about gay people. Um, all the closet people, they, we were the only link through to all of them that wasn't the daily press which was talking about the gay plague and absolutely traumatising everyone. But we, from the start, I mean, we were agitating for a place at the table because they didn't want us at the table. We were agitating for them to realise that gay men were massively disproportionately affected and that did not mean that you shunned the gay community, it meant you worked with them. Mm. Um, we were agitating about homophobic treatment in the health system. We were agitating about the fact that we had no legal protection so that someone who had been living with a partner for 20, 30 years, if that partner ended up in hospital with AIDS, that partner's family who had disowned him could swoop in, take over everything, have all, make all the decisions on treatment, and then refuse to let you even go to his funeral as his effective widower. I mean, there were incredible 
examples of inhumanity in those early days which we fought against mm. and it really did for me and I think for a lot of people make us think this isn't just about the age of consent if you'd asked anyone in the 70s or the early 80s what gay rights was about they would have said oh age of consent age of consent age of consent we started to realize it was about not being able to be sacked it was about having rights as a family it was about ability to access financial products because no gay man could get anywhere near an insurance policy or a mortgage in the early to mid 80s mm. in fact not until well into the 90s for all of those reasons gay men from that generation are still economically disempowered because they couldn't get hold of all of those financial products do you see any parallels between the HIV epidemic and coronavirus? Oh, <laughs> well, it's, that's a big talking shop for a lot of people I know. There are parallels and there are parallels you shouldn't make. There is a parallel in the way that people have either gotten completely obsessed and terrified by the faintest chance of getting it versus people who have become conspiracy theory denialists and my god do I see parallels between the um, Duesbergites named after professor, professor Duesberg who denied that HIV caused AIDS and said that it was actually the treatments that were killing people and the people who gather in masses with anti-covid signs and say it's all a conspiracy but on the other hand it's not the same because it's not besmirched with the sex and drugs stigmas which made people ignore HIV and AIDS for much longer. It's not just tackling communities that are um, disliked or unconsidered, although it is disproportionately, I mean, for, for black people and minority ethnic people, there is no doubt. Um, that it's operating in a similar way in the sense that they're not getting the attention they deserve because people in power don't care about them as much mm. and the elderly aren't getting the attention they deserve. Mm. Um, and the weirdest thing of all is that those young gay men who were most at risk of HIV and many of whom caught it but have survived to old age because of treatments. I've got a lot of gay friends on HIV treatment in their 50s to their 70s, whose basic attitude at the moment is, well, I'm, I, I didn't get done by the first virus. I'm fucked if this one's going to kill me, you know? And, and they are taking precautions like a bastard. They, you know, they really are taking it seriously about masks mm. and isolation and quarantine and all those things because they know what it means to lose that fight through being arrogant or unaccepting of the risks because they lost friends that way. Section 28, introduced by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in 1988, prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. This is her speaking at the Conservative Party conference the year before. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. 
The law sparked mass protests by LGBT campaigners, the largest of which was in Manchester. Lesbian activists stormed a BBC studio shouting stop the clause and another group of lesbian activists abseiled into the House of Lords after they voted in favour of the bill. The law brought together large swathes of the movement and was the impetus to found Stonewall, Britain's first professional gay rights lobby which Lisa co-founded. She explains the context behind Section 28 and why Stonewall was formed in response. Section 28 was a real object lesson in the blithe obliviousness of the 80s lesbian and gay movement to the side effects of what was being created from our increasing visibility and, to be fair, our increasing influence. Mm. And the backlash was massive. And now when I look at what is happening, horribly happening, um, to trans people in this country, because they have become a little bit more visible, the parallels with what happened to us over Section 28 are massive. And luckily this time around, we can see much more what those parallels are. And I'm hoping that the fight will be very different. Mm. But there's an awful lot of awful lot of parallels in the hysteria, the accusations of grooming of children, the amazing assumption that just a whiff of homosexuality will turn people gay. I mean, that's such a great compliment if you think about it. It's like saying one taste of your meal and nobody will ever want to eat my cooking again. <laughs> you know, I mean, just the insanity of it. And, and it was a mass hysteria fermented by particularly newspapers. Mm. Um, again, that, that, you know, the newspapers have had a huge role to play both times around. And both times we've been used as a scapegoat to distract from other serious things that are going on. Because if you, right now, if you can kick a trans person, you might not worry so much about COVID. You might not worry about the fact that women still don't have equal pay. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not logical. And what happened to us in the 80s wasn't logical, but we, I mean, it's, it's wrong to say we invited it because that's victim blaming, but we did nothing to avoid it. We did not do the things that we should have done to make sure that the backlash couldn't happen because we had no idea that that could happen in that way. So, you know, um, we, we really, we pushed the boundaries spectacularly without doing the education that ought to go alongside it. Um, we also didn't, at that point, talk to Tories ever, even though as now, they had an inbuilt majority in Parliament. And most people didn't want to help us. Most straight people, who could have been our allies if we cultivated them, had read all the shit in newspapers and we hadn't counted it properly. So I don't blame us for what happened with Section 28. It was produced by bigots for bigots. But we didn't do what we could have done. And the whole way that Stonewall happened after Section 28 was learning those lessons. And we knew that what we were going to do would be very unpopular because at that point, if you wanted to have a lesbian and gay organisation, you had to produce this faux democracy of everything being completely open. You can't have a lobby group that's completely open. Um, we knew that organisations were regularly taken over by the straight far left as vehicles. And yet we persisted in having small organisations whose open democracy made them a sitting duck for that kind of takeover. 
Mm. Um, so when we founded Stonewall, it was defensive, it was hermetically sealed, it was self-selected. It was all of the things that the gay movement at that point politically hated. Um, and we knew we were going to get a rough ride and we did. We had much more opposition from within the lesbian and gay world than we did from the straight world who were crying out for some queers they could talk to who were not going to sit there and demand everything next week who were going to say we know this is difficult for you too but if you really believe that we should have human rights because we're human why don't you help us along the way we were not a winning bet at that point and we'd done nothing to make things better now i totally understand how that happened but we learned the lesson very fast and i think all of the fighting we'd done around aids had hardened us mm. um i think that one of the things that happened with section 28 was that it did in a small way but a very deep way politicize a hell of a lot of lesbians and gay men who had not considered themselves anything to do with the gay movement in inverted commas mm. at that point they didn't wear double denim they didn't wear badges they didn't go on marches and there really wasn't very much for them and when we founded stonewall they could pay a monthly or a yearly subscription they could get a newsletter off us and we taught them how to write an effective letter to their local member of parliament we told them who their local candidates were who were likely to support gay rights mm. um, and suddenly they could be armchair activists and nobody had given them that before mm. or not effectively for some time anyway so suddenly stonewall was hated by the movement incredibly popular with grassroots ordinary work a day lesbians and gay men and their allies and families all around the country obviously there's that passage in in section 28 about gay people forming pretend family relationships yes that was well again that was a massive boot it was terrifying at the time particularly i mean you know lesbians and gay men regularly lost custody of their children mm, mm. in a divorce absolutely regularly um women who'd resorted to um, donor insemination did so illegally mm. um, and and you know you had to you couldn't get donor insemination from any of the from certainly not on the NHS and certainly not from any of the private places that did it for, for respectable married couples but we knew that attacking us as pretend families was a terrible insult and actually that really brought families on board Mm. A lot of people whose families have been a bit iffy with them before were like, you're, you're not telling my kid he's not part of my family. Um, and, and it did, I mean, people like me didn't believe in equal marriage. We didn't believe in gay marriage, as we would have called it then. And even when Stonewall was founded, you know, we never talked about marriage. We talked about all the other legal equalities. We hardly ever mentioned equal marriage because it was so impossible in our thinking. It was beyond our framework of thinking in a way that none of the other equalities were. Equal rights at work, sure, I totally understood that. Equal financial rights, equal all the other kinds of rights. Um, I could get my head around, but we just didn't, it just went whoosh. It was like, you know, something in plain sight that you can't quite comprehend. 
And yet when it started to happen, I mean, I stuck up for it, even though I, I actually believe marriage should be abolished for everyone. Terrible old radical. Um, but when it happened, I saw the power of it and the way that it suddenly reduced stigma to a degree that I had thought impossible um, and how happy it made the people um, who did it. I don't know what possessed Stonewall to be in opposition to equal marriage because all the way through everything we'd ever done from the start, the way we resolved all arguments in Stonewall was to say, if they've got it, we get it, whether that's a right or a responsibility. But there was no, you know, where was the downside to equal marriage? It was equal. They had it. We should have it. And I don't know. I honestly don't know why Stonewall at that point didn't recognise that simple rule of thumb that had got us all the way through to there. And, and is the rule of thumb that they still use. You know, Stonewall was never a revolutionary organisation. It was always equality. So, I mean... You talking about equal marriage reminds me a little bit of the the tension between Stonewall and the <laughs> wider movement over issues such as like gays in the army and and things like that. And I was wondering if you speak about that. Gays in the army. I mean, again, I you know I was I was fairly radical activist. Didn't really believe in the army uh, and stuff like that. But I totally got why we did um, armed forces as a very early target but yeah that didn't improve our standing with the older strands of um lesbian and gay activism as did you know our our absolute opposition to um outing people who didn't want to be outed mm -hmm. i mean stonewall took the very clear line from the start that we wanted to see people come out smiling we wanted to see people coming out brave we wanted to see people coming out constructively and hauling someone out of the closet while they look really miserable and are a scandal in the Sunday papers is not going to encourage anyone else to think that being gay is worth risking anything for. Mm. Um, but that put us on a collision course with outrage. Outrage was founded in 1990, around the same time as Stonewall, and like Stonewall, formed partly in response to Section 28, but the similarities ended there. Whilst Stonewall was modelled on a professional lobby organisation and focused on law reform, Outrage worked on a volunteer, non-hierarchical and grassroots basis, embarking on a series of high-profile direct action street protests. We have been great pals with at the start, and in fact... I co-signed a Stonewall-funded cheque, which paid for the first week's rent for, a meet, for the first ever meeting of outrage in the London Lesbian and Gay Centre. Um, and we did that because we knew we needed somebody screaming at the Members of Parliament to herd them into our arms. Mm. You know, that was completely a calculated relationship originally. And then it fell apart because outrage were not prepared to have that kind of under-the-table friendship with Stonewall. You know, they were as angry at us as they were at the bishops or the government or whatever. And we were we were not sufficiently right on. Mm. So that was the end of that lovely working relationship. I mean when when you look at Stonewall now in, in twenty twenty, are you are you proud? Oh God, yes. I mean I've always been proud of Stonewall mm. and what we did. You know, there might have been some wobbles, 
but I've always been proud of Stonewall um, mm. because it was a complete bloody shot in the dark. And don't let anyone tell you we knew exactly what we were doing and this is what we were aiming at. We knew we wanted equality and we knew that even when we got legal equality, we'd still need a whole load of stuff around social equality to be worked on. Mm. I learned that from the Danish lesbian and gay movement who got legal equality much earlier than us. But, you know, Stonewall now is not Stonewall then. It's a different beast. It's doing very different things. You know, it really annoys me when things seem to be going backwards now because for a long time we really believed that things, to use a new Labour phrase, could things could only get better. And that's not true. We've got stuff to do and, and there's still plenty of stuff to interfere with to be getting on with as a movement. I'm I'm wondering if if you're worried that something like section 28 might might come up again considering how much hate there is in the media towards trans people. Oh, absolutely. I mean there are people who would like to see a section 28 for trans people. There's no two ways about that. Some of them are in the major political parties because they've been completely sold a bunch of lies. Um it's people people love conspiracy theories at the moment they love extreme theories about life and frankly as far as i'm concerned anti-trans activism is a bit like QAnon. Mm. you know i see women who are and, and actually more men now than women who are obsessed with having a go at trans people absolutely obsessed um taking over their lives it's taking over mum's net for god's sake and it's just bizarre. I mean, if you are a feminist of any kind, why are you not more worried about the ongoing blatant inequalities in all women's lives? You know, the inequalities financially, the inequalities socially, uh, the inequalities in the way we're portrayed, um, the stigmatising of women in so many ways. No, you'd rather be obsessed with the theory that somebody might go into a toilet dressed in the wrong outfit. You're obsessed with the idea that somehow there is a slavering army of trans people, trans women, who are desperate to get you into bed and will try and force you there. It just, it's bollocks. It's mm. bollocks. It's not real life. Um, but it's a pity that um, some people have tried to use trans issues as a wedge in the LGBT plus movement and and I think it's a disgrace that anybody who has ever fought for their own rights against the same kinds of arguments that are being used against trans people can't see that um, but, but we see it a load of us see it and there are a lot more allies to trans people than there were to us back in the back in the 80s there are a lot more people who are prepared to stand up and be counted, including very large chunks of the lesbian and gay world. Mm. I mean, you know, people might be shouting loud against trans people and they might have made some inroads into influence. I mean, people like J.K. Rowling is deeply unfortunate, frankly. Um, she used to be a hero to me. She gave a lot of money to Terence Higgins Trust. She cared a lot about people. She pays her proper taxes but she's turned into a conspiracy theorist about trans people and you can't get to her. And anything you say is seen as attacking. And what, what is everybody out there listening to this who is not 65 and arthritic like what I am, what are you doing about it? 
you know we spent a lot of time in the 70s and the 80s trying to improve the world your turn now try and improve the world we've got in this country as well as the stuff that's out there i mean it seems ridiculous to be still trying to support nascent lgbt movements in turkmenistan or kenya or wherever when we're actually trying to also stop ours from going backwards mm. but that's what we've got to do when when you look when you look back on the campaign against section 28 and also the founding of stonewall and maybe it's too big a question to answer but what effect do you think it had on the trajectory of of lgbt rights in britain it accelerated it massively and i think there was a substantial period in which stonewall and british lgbt plus activists generally were seen as guiding lights to lots and lots of other movements around the world just as we were seen as pioneers in hiv community activism and there were lots of countries that wanted a stonewall of their own you know because we got a lot done, but we also got a lot done because we seized the moment. You know, we didn't get any of that law reform until Blair's government. And even with New Labour, they wanted to do it the lazy way. They liked us to take them to the European Court of Human Rights and make them change the law so they could say it wasn't their fault to all of the bigots who still supported them as well. Um, but we did get a huge amount done. And we have got ourselves to the point where when Liz Truss makes a stupid announcement off the top of her head in Parliament, which is clear signalling that she's about to try and beat up trans people, the legacy of Stonewall's work with parliamentarians pays off in that a huge wodge of the Tory party turn round and tell her to stuff it. We, we started in, in 19... 19- 75 I think it was and as a maybe final question I I wanted to ask why why do you think you've given so much time and energy to this cause and and why do you still care because it's been the most enormous fun because I've had a whale of a time because I've got brilliant friends out of it because for all of the awful things there have been brilliant things because i've had a great life and i've still got a great life and when i was young and i looked at what the future was for a young woman even of education it was pretty shitty i didn't want to be a housewife i didn't want to be a bilingual secretary i didn't want to be anybody else's wage slave i wanted to do what i wanted to do and i've had a life where most of the time on balance i've done what i damn well wanted in a world that didn't want me to do it that was lisa power hiv aids activist co-founder of stonewall and someone who continues to agitate for the dignity rights and agency of lgbt plus people all over i hope you enjoyed her recollections speaking with lisa felt like coming up the air the clarity of her perspective particularly on the parallels between the current anti-trans panic and section 28 
as well as between the AIDS epidemic and the coronavirus pandemic feel particularly relevant. Please do rate, subscribe and tell your friends, it all helps. I've been Will and this has been Queer Recollections. Thank you.